I'm still amazed by this whole idea that GM is buying stakes in mining companies. As I told Anthony Malowski in our feature interview, which was super interesting, he was at the BMO Mining Conference out of Miami. This, to me, represents a paradigm shift. I mean, I suppose this has been happening. We've been seeing stories about interest, but really taking large stakes in mining companies does seem like a shift. It, it feels real, whereas it feels like in the last two years there's been talk. I mean, the language has been quite interesting. In order to secure supply, that is the language we've seen for the last couple of years in these you know, car company mining stories. In order to secure supply, not to secure the price, but really to secure the supply. So that is super interesting. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I welcome you back to our interesting as ever discussion here on natural resources and what is going on in the world. And again, it seems like these resources are playing a central role. Jeff Curry has some really interesting things to say in an interview with Bloomberg. And what he was saying, of course, Jeff Curry is the head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs. And he was saying the reduction of Russian crude on the market by half a million barrels, for him, he said it's not by choice. This is not voluntary. So that is a new puzzle piece for us here, isn't it? It basically sounds like this is a result of sanctions. Russian crude production was likely to contract by 600,000 barrels a day, Curry said. And again, this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Moscow's recent announcement of a half a million barrel a day reduction in March, which follows the imposition of additional Western sanctions on energy flows, wasn't voluntary. So that is quite interesting uh, because, again, there was a sense that this was a strategy by Russia in order to inflate the West. I mean, that was exactly what I was suggesting last week. But if this is involuntary, that is quite a different situation, isn't it? So we have to keep an open mind on all these things. Meanwhile, if you look out at China, I mean, they are reducing their lithium exports. I mean, the global lithium supply, let me dig up this story, quite a headline here. China lithium probe shuts down a tenth of global supply. That's also Bloomberg via mining.com. So in the name of environmental concern, China, the government is cracking down on their lithium miners as they're booming. And this will take off 10% of the global supply of lithium, or at least it affects it. It shuts it down. I mean, as we look into the story here, the, you know, commentators say, well, they probably have, you know, stockpiles. So it's not something that happens immediately. And lithium prices have come down in the last few months. So there are a few different things going on here. But as I discussed with Nick Kakos, who's coming up in our CEO spotlight here, and big shout out to Argentina Lithium and Energy for sponsoring this week's episode. You know, lithium has gone from something like, I think he said something like $3,000, I think a ton, to $80,000, maybe more. It was like a 30X. So it's pretty interesting, this 10% reduction here. So anyway, so that is happening. And also, you know, in case you didn't hear, they are also, you know, reducing their aluminum supply on the market, from what I understand, due to power issues in China. So they're asking, you know, a province where they're hosting several aluminum smelters. Let me just bring up the story here. China's Yunnan province has asked aluminum producers to reduce power consumption by 40 to 42 percent from September levels in the face of an ongoing supply crunch in regard to power. So aluminum is being curtailed, lithium is being curtailed, and oil is being curtailed. And the reasons may be accidental or not, but one just imagines this is going to put a squeeze on the market. Now, Curry, Jeffrey Curry, is quite bullish on commodities, and it's interesting rationale that he gives, which is a benign inflationary environment in the U.S., which sounds like we may have inflation, but it's not going to be out of control. Therefore, the economy will not, you know, collapse. And so this will create an environment where basically things keep going. In other words, demand will remain strong. And as he says, there will likely be, quote, widespread commodity shortages later this year. And he's expecting a 31% move over 12 months based on the S&P GSCI index. So 
Pretty interesting. He sees the oil market tightening up. We'll take a closer look at that. But anyways, uh, it's a complicated world out there. There's always this temptation to oversimplify, but it is quite complicated. And there is a lot of things, you know, as we look at these news stories that we have to take on, you know, a kind of authority. Well, I guess Jeffrey Curry does know what he's talking about when he says that this reduction in Russian energy isn't voluntary. I mean, I guess we have to take his word on it, but it it seemed to me that what Russia was telegraphing, and they've been telegraphing it for a year, is that they were really out to, you know, return the global economy back to uh, real things, you know, and that this overly, you know, financialized West-based, uh, over-indebted West that, you know, printing money, you know, as Samuel Johnson referring to George Berkeley's idealism that the world is all made of ideas, Samuel Johnson kicks the stone, I refute it thus. And it seemed to me that, you know, part of Putin's plan was simply to, you know, I refute it thus and, you know, calling the West bluff on resources here. But it is not a simple picture out here, is it? I mean, it is quite complicated. A lot of cross currents here and a lot of you know, stories, what are the underlying motives for China making this push on, you know, the environment with these lithium companies in China right now? I guess the price of lithium has come down somewhat. So maybe there's motivation there. Maybe it's genuine. Maybe there are environmental problems that are taking place. Or, you know, these companies were making a fortune. And you also wonder, is this similar to the tech crackdown that they had in China where, you know, people were becoming too powerful? politically, with all the money that they had. And so Xi, perhaps out of domestic political concern, is cracking down. So, I mean, this is pretty complicated, right? And again, if this reduction in Russian supply is not voluntary, I mean, that seems to fly in the face of what they were saying, but that's not to say it's not true. So what a picture we have here. Now, turning to Anthony Malowski and this feature interview is quite interesting. Again, he was at BMO's mining conference in Miami, and he was actually offering a pretty interesting view from an investment thesis that really there's an opportunity in U.S. exploration companies and just smaller you know, U.S. copper companies. He names a couple, and again, not financial advice on this show but just interesting ideas that he's sharing, doing, sharing what he's doing. And it's quite a, you know interesting thesis, and it sounds like this is what people at the conference were talking about, that with the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., the IRA as it's called, uh, one can expect more investment in mining and more just general support in mining domestically in the United States. And you know there seems to be a real push to source their metals from, you know, North America, if not the U.S., you know, as unrealistic or realistic as that might sound. So a pretty interesting interview. We also discussed the LME. And of course, he's the chairman of Nickel 28. So it was fascinating to get his views on what is going on and just his perception and his, you know, his opinion of the London Metals Exchange, particularly in light of the last year and also of these different kinds of nickel. And how, you know, the, the so-called nickel price is actually kind of a misguided idea. There are different kinds of nickels that sell for different amounts of money. And as we see in some of these news stories, the price at the LME is somewhat divorced from the physical market. So they're really, the credibility problem continues from what I'm seeing in the news here and also what Anthony Malowski is saying. Even BHP was coming out and saying, like, there's a problem with the nickel price at the LME. So if they're coming out and saying that, uh, you know, you probably have a problem. This is probably a legitimate, you know, issue as we try and navigate all these stories to try and determine, you know, what is real and what is not and just try and make sense of this incredibly complicated situation called our world. So welcome back, everyone. And we have a wonderful show for you. We're actually going to kick it off with Nick Kakos from Argentina Lithium and Energy. And he tells us about their projects that are going on in Argentina and they have all sorts of exciting projects, four projects, and they sound very promising. Near One is adjacent to Rio Tinto project, and the other is adjacent to Albemarle. If I'm pronouncing that right, that is one of the hardest words in the English language to say. 
But nevertheless, that is the case. So anyways, a very fun episode in store for you. And also thank you to everybody who attended the Global Mining Symposium last week. It was a great event and we have all sorts of coverage on the Northern Miner website. So do check that out. And if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us at Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Nick Kakos, president and CEO of Argentina Lithium and Energy for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome back Nick Kakos, President and CEO of Argentina Lithium and Energy, to the Northern Miner podcast for a CEO spotlight. We talked to him, gosh, it feels like about a year ago, and so it'll be really exciting to get an update. Nick, welcome back. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on your program. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, you guys are in such a topical area in metals, in particularly just in the big, you know, macroeconomic, geopolitical, you name it. You guys are in lithium and you're in Argentina. So tell me, what is the update? What is new with Argentina lithium and energy? There's lots that's new. We've we've been very, very busy since the last time we uh, spoke in Argentina. Last time we spoke, we um, had not started work on our projects yet, but now I can happily say we've had a drill program that's ongoing for the last 10 months on our one of our flagship projects, Rincon West, with results coming out so far, just like uh, the kinds of numbers that we've been that we're seeing with our other neighbors on that same Salar or Salt Lake, uh, Rio Tinto, who we're next door neighbors with, and Argosy Minerals. So we're very very pleased with that. And uh, th while this program of drilling is projected to continue going on until the end of the year, and for your listeners and viewers here. We are able to drill about one hole per month. So every month we have some news on results coming out. And then the next few months here, we're going to embark on a resource calculation, our maiden resource calculation for Rincon, and simultaneously start a second drill program on our second flagship project, uh, Antofaya. Uh, this is a, another great project where we have a great big position. And again, we're situated right next door to Albemarle, which is you know, the world's second largest lithium producer. So we've got high hopes, lots of activity ongoing for the balance of the year. Okay, excellent. And so for people who are maybe new to Argentina Lithium and Energy's story, you guys, as far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you have three properties, is it, in Argentina, and you're lithium-focused? We have four properties, all lithium-focused, and all four properties are located in northwestern Argentina within a region known as the Lithium triangle. Now, for those who are not aware, the lithium triangle encompasses a little bit of eastern Chile, a little bit of southern Bolivia, and a chunk of northwestern Argentina. What makes this area really interesting from a lithium perspective is that more than 60% of the world's known lithium reserves come from this region. So when you're looking for lithium, you go where there's lithium has been found, and that's exactly what we've done. I mean, our group has 30 years of expertise in Argentina. We are, you know, managed by Grosso Group, an awarded, you know, and renowned organizing management team in, in, in mining pioneers, actually, in Argentina. And we've been very successful in being able to source some very highly prospective properties. And the results now are already beginning to pay out for us and, and for our shareholders. Interesting. So Rio Tinto, as you were saying, is beside you and Albermale. Am I pronouncing that right? Albermarle? Yes. It, they're on the uh, adjacent to another property or the same property? On a different property, Antofaya. And and are they producing already on these properties or what's the deal with the... Well, interestingly, Rio Tinto came in about a year ago, almost to the day, um, and acquired their position next to our property. They paid $820 million U.S. million for that. They have a resource there, a large resource. And they are looking to go into production within the next year or so. On the other side of the of this uh, Salt Lake is uh, an Australian miner uh, known as uh, Argosy Minerals. Argosy is actually going into production this year on that project. So they're advanced. And by the way, with Rio Tinto, they also signed a memorandum of understanding to supply Ford Motor Company with lithium that's going to be extracted from this solar. So our position there is in a very, very high profile solar and uh, very prospective 
And like I said, we're getting the, exactly the kind of results that they've been getting. Further south at the Antofaya, the other Salar, we have the entire northern portion of this uh, salt lake. And uh, Albermal is beginning to uh, get the permissions to go into production. They have not disclosed exactly how big their deposit is, but they have made a statement that they believe it's the largest resource in Argentina of lithium. Incredible. So that sounds very promising. Now, I think a lot of people would like that story, but they might have a second question just on, you know, they hear all sorts of stories about South America, you know, with Peru and just protests and all this sort of stuff. What can you tell us about Argentina? Can you assuage people's worries on that front because jurisdiction risk is kind of a growing issue for a lot of people these days. Well, jurisdiction risk has always been there and will always be there. Uh, and, 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 and jurisdiction risk is always how one views it from a relative point of view as well. So when we're looking at lithium, when we're looking at Argentina, well, number one is the way to mitigate some of that risk is to be with a group that has a lot of expertise and is very comfortable in operating in that country. Now, like I said, we're managed, we're a Grosser Group company. We're pioneers there in that country. We have 30 years of operation. We've seen governments come from left and right and all kinds, but you know, the never there's never been any risk to our projects at all. In fact, in every case, all governments in Argentina have recognized that the mining industry, and in particular the lithium mining industry, is very much needs to be developed and, and is very much always supported because they recognize the revenues, the potential revenues that it can bring in for a country like Argentina that requires revenues. I think compared to the problems in Chile or the problems in Peru, they're unique to these countries. In Argentina, we don't see the same kind of risk. Argentina, in fact, there's elections coming up. Uh, there's projections for a pro-business government to win. But irrespective of who wins, like I said, in the mining industry, we have never seen anyone go against the the mining it's a it's been a very fruitious experience for us we've uh, after 30 years you know having made four different discoveries and never had any problem and you know if there was big risk you wouldn't see the these big companies like real tinto and so forth coming in and investing hundreds and hundreds of millions or not, if not billions of dollars in a country like argentina well, to your point, I mean, lithium has done incredible this year. Can you speak just for, you know, briefly on what is going on in the lithium market? Like, it seems like it's kind of, you know, 10x or more. Uh, what's going on there? Well, it's done more than 10x, I have to say. <laughs> you know, we've seen the price of lithium go from just a few thousand dollars. And now, you know, it hit at one point up to eighty, eighty-five thousand dollars $85,000 a ton. And uh, what's driving that, of course, is demand. There's a demand for, especially for electric vehicles. I think the number one driver in the world right now is the push in China to have electric vehicles there. And uh, they're arguably the leaders in terms of electrification. However, you know, you don't have to go too far. You can just pick up your local paper. There's always an article some every day about, you know, getting uh, electrification in North America and in Europe. And there's this huge demand that's coming. There's a requirement for lithium. Lithium is an integral uh, component for lithium batteries, not just for vehicles, but for all of the electronic devices that we're using. And that's really what's driving the, the, the price up. And uh, the interesting thing is, as the price of lithium stays high, the cost of extracting lithium, especially from these solars, is uh, getting lower. There's new direct lithium extraction techniques that allows one you know, to extract, if you can extract lithium between two and $4,000 a ton and turn around and sell it for seventy dollars or $80,000 a ton, hey, that's good business in anybody's language. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And just, just finally, could we wrap up on basically maybe a little bit on the team? And are you able to get the workers you need in uh, Argentina, say for drilling? And is there a lot of demand? Is it easier right now or hard? Uh, what's going on there? It's, it's hard. It, there's a lot of demand for it. However, with our 30-year track record there, we have a lot of deep relationships, you know, within the industry and uh, with drilling companies. And uh, we are fortunate in being able to get whatever equipment we need when we need it. We're able to get our permitting done on time when we need it. So our reputation has served us well. We try to work openly, transparently, honestly, and that's been recognized. In fact, you know, Joe Grosso, our chairman, He's been inducted into Argentina's Mining Hall of Fame. So we are truly, you know, we may be a junior company, 
but in the eyes of Argentina, we're like a major mining company with a, a with a you know spotless reputation, and uh, that that I think takes us very far and gives sets us apart from all the others. Just as a final question, how are you guys for funding? What what is the story there, just in terms of the company? Well, happy to say that we did a nice big financing last quarter. We've got over ten million dollars in our treasury right now. We are completely fully funded to carry out and complete all our exploration programs for this year. And uh, with all this news coming out, I'm hoping that we're going to see a better valuation, you know, and from there, uh, move on to bigger and better things uh, within, with our company next year. Okay, excellent. And one last question for you as we wrap up here. What is your message to investors when they are considering investing in your company? Well, when you consider an investment, you know, of course, Look at the company's projects. Company's projects are important that they have the potential. But more importantly, look at the track record of the management team that's running it, because even a good asset can be, you know, mucked up with poor management. Having a great asset also requires a great team, great management in order to push something, you know, from early stage all the way into the to the level where it can be uh, go into production. In our organization, I'm proudly able to say through the Grosser Group, we've been able to manage in the last 30 years, many projects that have gone from initial discovery all the way up into production. So we've got the wherewithal, we've got the talent within our organization, and we have the track record. Excellent. Well, Nick Kakos, President and CEO of Argentina Lithium and Energy, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Pleasure has been mine. And we'd like to thank Argentina Lithium and Energy for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website, China Lithium Probe, shuts down a tenth of global supply. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. China's lithium industry is reeling as its top production hub, responsible for around a tenth of the world's supply, faces sweeping closures amid a government probe of environmental infringements. The crackdown in Yichun, Jiangxi province, follows a local lithium frenzy over the past year as miners raced to feed rampant demand for the battery material and to benefit from record global prices. Now they're grappling with a close-up inspection by environment officials sent from Beijing. Ore processing operations in Yichun have been ordered to stop as investigators probed alleged violations at lithium mines, Ikai newspaper reported. That threatens somewhere between 8 and 13 percent of global supply, according to various analyst estimates, although it's unclear for how long the immediate shutdowns will last. The probe in China injects a big dose of uncertainty into a lithium market that's seen prices cool, bringing some relief to EV manufacturers as more global output emerges. Zhangji province was expected to be a major source of extra supply from a lithium-bearing mineral known as lipidolite. Quote, the supervision may mean that the inspection and control over lipidolite Mining in China will be more stringent in the future, end quote, said Susan Zhu, analyst at Rystad Energy. There is another comment here at the bottom of the article. Chris Berry, president of House Mountain Partners, an industry consultancy, said that, quote, any mine would typically have a stockpile of ore in place. So as long as the refineries are operating, you aren't likely to see any whipsaw in lithium pricing. Should these mines be halted for months, then this becomes a different story. So interesting story out of China here, which could dramatically affect the lithium supply, potentially. And another story here, Stellantis Rio Tinto grabs stakes in McEwen Copper, and this is Maryland Scales on the Northern Miner. McEwen Copper, a subsidiary of McEwen Mining, is attracting investment for its Los Azulis Copper Project in San Juan Province of Argentina. So another project in Argentina, Newton, a Rio Tinto subsidiary that had already invested $25 million for a 10% stake in McEwen Copper last year, has promised a further $40 million. Stellantis, a leading international automaker, so another automaker, has pledged $207 million. So that is significantly more. So interesting story there. A major grabbing some more copper here, as well as an automaker you know, as we open this show with. Jindalee Resources claims McDermott Project is the U.S. largest lithium deposit. And this also speaks to the interview with Anthony Malowski that we are going to hear here. 
Uh, Australia's Jindalee Resources says it has the largest lithium deposit in the United States after updating the resource for its McDermott project to 22 million tons of lithium carbonate equivalent, up 65% from last year. The project has taken over Lithium America's 16.1 million tons of LCE Thacker Pass project in the southern sector of the McDermott Caldera. Jindalee believes its project in southeast Oregon can play a role in the U.S. battery push as a source of domestically produced lithium supply. So there is going to be a push here for domestic production of these resources. And interestingly, here is another story out of the U.S. U.S. announces tariffs on Russian metals, including aluminum. So you may recall that Alcoa was putting pressure on the LME to stop handling Russian aluminum and other metals and that didn't work. So now the U.S. is putting tariffs on Russian metals. This is Bloomberg News. The U.S. announced new action against Russia's metals and mining sector that include measures it said will significantly increase the cost of importing Russian aluminum. The White House will raise tariffs on more than 100 Russian metals, minerals, and chemical products worth $2.8 billion to Russia. It said Friday in a statement announcing a fresh round of measures to mark the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. The measures will, quote, significantly increase costs for aluminum that was smelted or cast in Russia to enter the U.S. market, end quote, it said without immediately giving further details. Bloomberg previously reported that the U.S. was preparing to impose a 200% import tariff on Russian aluminum. And we have a comment from commodity strategist Ua Manthi, quote, we think this will have a limited impact on the global aluminum market. If the U.S. were to go with the sanctions route, it would have a more severe impact on the market. So it sounds like because it is only the U.S. that is imposing these tariffs and they are not sanctions that are globally applied, there is less impact, which probably just means that the aluminum will be rerouted, which seems to often happen. And we have Alcoa, Responds, action against Russia's aluminum received fervent support from U.S. producers led by Alcoa. The White House said Friday it was, quote, expanding its sanctions authorities to Russia's metals and mining sector, end quote, but that the move would be tailored to minimize market disruption. So Alcoa is happy. They finally got what they wanted, I guess, more or less. China's supply concerns boost aluminum prices. This is Reuters via mining.com. And this is from about a week ago. Aluminum prices climbed to their highest in more than a week on worries about output cuts in top producer China, though rising inventories capped gains. And this is what we were mentioning in the opening segment. China's Yunnan province has asked aluminum producers to reduce power consumption by 40% from September levels in the face of an ongoing supply crunch. And we have a quote from Sukden financial analyst Jordi Wilkies Quote, aluminum prices have been supported by the prospect of capacity curtailment in China due to power availability. This could see output cuts as seasonal demand starts to pick up in March. Analysts estimate output cuts at smelters in China since the middle of last year will cut supplies in the top consumer to less than 40 million tons by the end of February. Aluminum stocks in the LME-registered warehouses have nearly doubled to 581,000 tons, since February 6th, in warehouses monitored by the Shanghai Futures Exchange, aluminum inventories have jumped 360% since late December to 250,000 tons. So that sounds like they're getting flooded. Up 360% since late December, but maybe it was very low before, so hard to tell what that means. So interesting story there. And continuing on, BHP says reform to LME nickel contract, quote, long overdue. So BHP weighs in on the LME nickel contract. This is Reuters via mining.com. BHP Group, the world's largest listed miner, said that the London Metal Exchange's nickel contract does not represent the physical market and reform is, quote, long overdue. Sliding volumes since a nickel trading fiasco last year when the LME suspended the market for more than a week have reinforced the problem on the world's largest and oldest metals forum. And we have a quote from Hu McKay, VP of Market Analysis and Economics at BHP Group, who said in the company's latest economic and commodity outlook issued on Tuesday in Australia, quote, reform of the LME's metal delivery rules is long overdue. The LME short squeeze episode highlighted vulnerabilities that had been building for years. 
And he also said, for now, the reality is that the global price discovery mechanism for this critical building block of the energy transition is not functioning well. And he continues, the basic tension is that the exchange where the benchmark price is set has become more removed from what is happening in the physical clearing market, China, which again is exactly what Anthony Malowski discusses in our feature interview here. So interesting, a disparity. It sounds like the price is not good and that it is inaccurate. What I'd like to know as a follow-up is which is higher? Is the LME lower or is it higher? That's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Because there is a sense, I mean, I think from like the conspiratorial crowd that the West is manipulating these markets. So were that to be the case, one would think that the price would be manipulated lower, right? Were one to go down that route. So just as a standard question, it'd be kind of interesting to know what is the disparity in the price? Continuing on, Newmont's M&A drive offers path from decade-long gold rut. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. So maybe the Newmont push to buy Newcrest Mining for $17 billion is just the kind of thing that could set a fire in the gold stocks. And it comes as miners wrestle with the reality that gold deposits are small, costly, and short in life while making the case for more diversification. Without an acquisition, Newmont predicts that its gold production will stay around 6 million ounces a year for the next decade, the Denver-based company said in a Thursday presentation. I still think that's the most by quite a bit. The miner has stagnated around that level for the past three years. Newmont size means M&A is the only route to grow, said Grant Spore, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Quote, they want to become the Exxon of the gold sector, so big that the generalist investor thinks of them when they think of gold. That is true for Exxon, isn't it? A tie-up with Australia's Newcrest would boost Newmont's gold output by about a third based on 2022 production and give the added bonus of greater exposure to highly sought copper. Newcrest rejected Newmont's $17 billion proposal last week, with Interim Chief Executive Officer Sherry Dew saying the company was, quote, worth a lot more, end quote. Newmont CEO Tom Palmer said during a Thursday earnings call that he was, quote, disappointed by the response and added that he's still engaging with the company. And he continues, quote, given the challenges gold has currently been facing, there's never been a better time for Newmont and Newcrest to come together, Palmer said on the call, adding that a combination would create Quote, an ideal mix of gold and copper, strengthening Newmont's overall position. So interesting concept there from Bloomberg on Newmont's M&A and what that might mean for the market. And finally, Goldman's Curry says China recovery, A-OK, commodities to jump, Bloomberg News via mining.com. Commodities are poised to rally in 2023 as China recovers, U.S. inflation proves to be benign, and Russian oil production contracts, according to Goldman Sachs Group's Jeff Curry. Quote, the real core of the bullish view is the recovery in China. And quote, Curry, global head of commodities research, told Bloomberg TV in an interview in Hong Kong Wednesday. He continued, quote, and everything is pointing to that being A-OK. End quote. He said, sticking with a bullish view, despite a soft start to the year for raw materials. Commodities have eased in the opening weeks of 2023, despite China's swift abandonment of COVID-0 with crude oil among the losers. That drop has been driven by U.S. economic data surprising to the upside, aiding the dollar, a collapse in natural gas, and rising metals inventories, according to Curry. In oil, quote, what we see right now is that the market is beginning to tighten back up, end quote, citing a bullish backwardated pattern in Brent. On the U.S. outlook, quote, our economists think the core inflation picture is going to be relatively benign, and as a result, we continue to be very positive, end quote. Russian crude production was likely to contract by 600,000 barrels a day, Curry said. Moscow's recent announcement of a half a million barrel a day reduction in March, which follows the imposition of additional Western sanctions on energy flows, wasn't voluntary, he added. Goldman Sachs expects returns from commodities over 12 months of 31% based on the S&P GSCI. According to a February 20th note, there will likely be, quote, widespread commodity shortages, end quote, later this year, the bank said in that report. 
So it's all coming to a head. Those are your news stories. And now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year bond. In the U.S. 10 years at 3.967%, so almost 3.97. I mean, we are right below 4%. And look at the U.K. 10-year at 3.89%. So the bond market yields continue to rise here. Let's see what that all means. But all heck was breaking loose at 4.5% U.K. bonds not that long ago. So... Interesting, interesting. So turning to metals markets, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on February 28th, gold is trading at $1,810.79 per ounce. That is $26 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $20.53 per ounce. That is $1.33 lower then last week, platinum is trading $3 lower at $940.88 per ounce, and palladium is trading at $1,432.97 per ounce. That is $93 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.99 per pound. That is $0.10 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is $0.04 cents lower at $1.05 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at 94 cents per pound. Nickel is 50 cents lower at $11.27 per pound. Tin is 8 cents lower at $11.76 per pound. Cobalt is 68 cents lower at $15.20 per pound. And zinc is 4 cents lower at $1.37 per pound. Zooming out, I mean, across the board, Metals are down, and that seems to coincide with a pause in the stock market here as it hovers above 3,900 on the S&P. You know, it seems like the metals are taking a break and continuing to fall lower based on a sense of risk off trade after the, the really strong start to the year that we saw in financial markets. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Anthony Malowski, chairman of Nickel 28, and he calls in from the BMO Mining Conference in Miami, where the weather looked fabulous. Anthony Malowski has spent his career in various aspects of the mining industry, including as company director, advisor, and founder, and investor. And he gives some pretty good, interesting, let's call it that way, uh, tips, uh, investment tips, at least what he's thinking about. And of course, none of this is financial advice. But pretty fun ideas. And he's been active in the battery metals industry, including investing in cobalt and actively trading physical cobalt. And he's also quite familiar with the LME. It says in his bio here, in 2017, Anthony accepted an invitation from the London Metals Exchange to join the LME Cobalt Committee, which includes representatives from the largest mining and commodity companies globally to represent the interests of the industry to the board of directors, the LME. So therefore, when Anthony Malowski discusses the LME, like it's not just, you know, some guy's opinion. It sounds like he's worked with them and understands what's going on over there. So I hope you enjoy it. I sure did. And I'll see you on the other side. Today, I am very pleased to welcome back Anthony Malowski, chairman of Nickel 28 and founder of the Organ Group to the Northern Miner podcast. Anthony, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Thanks a lot. I always appreciate uh, coming on the show and, and having a chat. Well, it's long overdue. I think the last time we talked was probably at the Global Mining Symposium, what feels like a year or two ago. The years all blend into one, particularly after COVID. Anyways, how are you doing? What is new? I mean, you're, again, neck deep in the nickel market here. Uh, I guess, and how's the conference? Uh, maybe we can start with that. Yeah, so I'm at, at BMO's annual mining conference, which really kind of kicks off the year. And it's it's always interesting to kind of see the new ideas and listen to people talk. And I think two big, you know, immediate takeaways are the interest in base metals, right? And that, that includes copper, nickel, 
and I don't know if you want to include lithium as a base metal, or you want to include them more as an industrial metal, but you know, really those metals that are part of this global energy transition are you know, what people are talking about. And I think to a lesser degree, people are talking about gold, but more in the context of gold is interesting when interest rates start to decline and that could be a couple of years off. So, you know, there's a bubbling gold bull market, but it feels, you know, it's still a ways off. But I think the real focus is the demand that's being caused by, you know, reworking transmission lines, selling electric vehicles with an overlay of geopolitics, you know, with the U.S. now uh, in the face of, of a war in Russia and weather balloons and all this nonsense is really kind of focused on creating a domestic supply inside of the U.S. for the first time in, in a couple of generations, really since World War II. And so I think that's a, a big theme from the people I'm talking with. That's fascinating. So the U.S. wants to source nickel then or other base metals, as you're saying, from within the United States. I mean, from your perspective, how how is that going? Like, are, are, do you think they have a shot at doing that? Or like, uh, are they at least on a path towards doing that? I guess, what's your assessment when you hear yeah, something mean, like that? I mean, like, I think they're calling them critical minerals. I think that's how the, 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 the government is defining it. You know, they're pretty darn late to the game, right? You know, if you think about from the discovery of a deposit to building a mine, if it is ever built, is something like 12 to 15 years. Like, that's kind of the time frame. And and even, even that, to a certain extent, is unrealistic. And so what I understand from the legislation is that they're actually going to penalize producers of widgets, like electric vehicles, who don't have a certain percentage of material actually produced in the U.S. And I think that's kind of impossible in the short term. You know, if you look at the amount of copper produced, the almost non-existent nickel and cobalt, I mean, there's a little bit of cobalt in Idaho and some nickel in, in the kind of... Uh, Great Lakes region, it's pretty darn hard to see how we ever get to uh, a sustaining level for U.S. consumption. So I think it's unrealistic. You know, maybe they might be able to get there for the war machine. You know, if, if they feel like they need certain uh, minerals for the war machine, the U.S. war machine. But there's no way that every Tesla is going to have uh, nickel and lithium from the U.S. You know, I think it's a, impossible for decades and probably ever. Well, it sounded like a challenge to begin with before they kind of self-strangulated the supply. Uh, it sounded like even if you just took all the nickel in the world and all the copper in the world, that we were kind of undergoing a potential phase here. I mean, people are talking about, a, you know, a commodities bull market, super cycle, you know, on the way here. So even with no restrictions and even, say, enabling like, quote unquote, dirty, you know, non-ESG friendly metals that this would still be a challenge. I mean, and this is the Inflation Reduction Act. Is that with the legislation? The Inflation that? Enhancement Act, I think, is a better way to put it. Yeah. Can you imagine, you know, if you have this scenario where you have copper being produced in America and copper being produced elsewhere or by, you know, countries it deems kind of not friendly, you're going to have like two copper markets emerge. You know, there's all kinds of weird things that will happen. And what, one thing I will note is if you have a copper project in America or a cobalt project in America, nickel project in America, it's wildly bullish for you in terms of funding, in terms of moving that project forward. You know, projects like U.S. Copper or it's a micro cap stock and Nevada Copper. I mean, these things which have struggled, all of a sudden they're incredibly interesting. So it's, it's bullish for a certain subset of companies, but it's very impractical. You know, I, I think that they're going to find that this is not going to work. The Chinese approach is actually very smart. You know, what, what China has done is they've gone into Africa and they've funded projects in the DRC and for copper and cobalt and for nickel, they've gone into Indonesia. And they really, if they don't already, they will control the global supply. And I think it's very short-sighted of the U.S. to say, well, we're going to sort of create domestic production. Like, that's unrealistic. You know, I think maybe where the U.S. government needs to go is they need to fund Canadian nickel projects, you know. There's a handful of them in Canada that they could fund. You know, they're going to have to take a more expansive view if they really feel strongly about what they're going to allow and not allow. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, you know, I remember my dad, you know, railing against like all the these assets being sold off to valet in Canada, like way back when. And it just seems like they're 15 years too late to the party to start. Make, like this would have been fabulous, I think, 15 years ago. Let's, 
you know, and they probably would have been beautifully timed and we'd probably be sitting pretty. So anyways, I guess interesting. So I was reading over your article and you wrote this great article for the Northern Miner just a week ago called Clean Nickel or Cheap Nickel. You can't have both. Can you parse out a little bit for listeners and viewers the subtleties of the nickel market? Like you talk about there's a a class one, I think, and a class two. I think most people, like it was basically, it shouldn't be news to me, but frankly, it was news to me, these, you know, subtleties. Can you kind of educate people a little bit about the subtleties of the nickel market? Yeah, and I think it's it's almost sort of any commodity market. And, and that is, that when you have an ore body. Let's just start with the basics. You have this ore body and, you know, nature builds the ore body the way it builds it. And the way that you mine that and then process it is really related to, you know, it's natural construction. So however it sits there in the earth in a lot of ways dictates how you process it and how you process it, how you process it kind of dictates what you end up with. So in certain cases, like at Ramu, we come up with an MHP, which is almost like a slurry. And this is really ideal because it can go directly into like the battery industry, right? You might've heard the term nickel pig iron. That type of nickel is more suited to going into steel production. You might have heard like class one nickel, which is a metal, which is a refined metal. So it's gone all the way through the process. It's been then melted down and put into pure nickel. Depending on what you're going to use it for, depending on the end use of the nickel, and also depending on where it starts. So let's pretend that you have a nickel pig iron project in Indonesia, right? You can ultimately upgrade that to refined nickel. In other words, you can take it through this process of, of you know, how, depending on the flow sheet, you can slowly take it through the process, upgrading it. But each time you upgrade or change the composition of that nickel, it costs money and it's dirty. So taking nickel pig iron to like refined metal is going to be expensive and costly, right? And so I think the whole point here is that there are different nickel markets. And while it's all fungible, there's a cost to make it fungible. So any form of nickel could be used for anything. There would just be a cost to transform it into the right, whether you want it in solution, so you've melted it with acid, whether you want to put it into a blast furnace. So just that that kind of transition costs money. And I think one of the points is people don't realize it when they look at the LME price, they think nickel is nickel. And that's not the case. And so you know, one of the points of the article is really kind of helping to explain to people that that nickel comes in all these different forms and it is ultimately fungible, that is true, but the cost and the pollution associated with transferring it between forms can either be cost prohibitive or problematic depending on where it's being done in the world because also regulations are different in different places. And you know, when we talk about nickel and we look at nickel deposits, you know, unlike say a copper or a small gold project that maybe could be built in the low hundreds of millions of dollars, most new nickel projects are in the billions of dollars to build, multiple billions of dollars. And the only place on earth right now that those projects are being built in any size is in Indonesia by the Chinese government. And so as we kind of come into this shortfall here of nickel, the only added supply coming in is actually coming from the Chinese government. So, you know, this conversation around who, who controls uh, the future of nickel, it's the investor controls it, and the investor today is the Chinese government. So that there's a bunch of things to unpack there, but it's a really important nuance that people don't understand. You know, look at Dumont in Canada. Well, everyone knows about that deposit. It's a couple billion dollars to build. And why why is it being built? It's not being built because there's no investor for it. There's no private investor, and the Canadian government's not building it. You can almost be guaranteed if that was sitting in China, the Chinese government would have built it a decade ago. And so there, there's this kind of nuance there around these sources of capital and funds on these projects. But if I had to distill it down, the new nickel is coming from Indonesia. It's coming from their investor, the Chinese government. And this whole bifurcation of, of the nickel, um, different types of nickel, is really about the cost and the energy it takes to transfer nickel from one type of nickel to another. Right. Like in your article, you kind of point out how there's a big difference between the nickel that you need for a car battery, electric vehicle battery, and for stainless steel. 
and that the nickel you need for an electric vehicle is there's I think you said there's like 25% of the nickel out there is good for electric vehicles. And so, you know, as you say, investors who just see the nickel price on the LME, all that is lost on the person who's just looking at the quote unquote nickel price. Any of the other types of nickel could be converted into that to the nickel that's more, but right. it just costs money. Exactly. It's pollution and the energy, right? And so that's kind of the, the nuance. And that is directly related to the ore bodies and the places where we extract the nickel and the, the, the type of processing and how we extract the nickel. Interesting. And like you say, in North America, you know, we have legislation that says we want more locally sourced nickel coming from the politicians. But on the other hand, I, I'm actually surprised to hear that, you mean, there's no progress on Dumont? I would think that right now they would be pushing that like crazy, like and saying, what do you need? How can we help? What do you need money? Like what? what and there's, are they still waiting on that? As far as you understand, I don't well, know. I don't know. I don't, run, I don't run that project. I mean, I know that <laughs> Goldman, Goldman ran a project, uh, a process um, for the private equity owner a year ago. And it, apparently, you know, there was no bidder or buyer and no one came to terms because we would have heard about it. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what the status is today, but but clearly the status isn't that we're building it. <laughs> Otherwise, we would all know that, right? So, and you know, there are other there are other projects in Canada as well. I, I can't think of the name of the project, but Mark Selby runs a right a Canada Nickel Company. I Canada believe. Nickel, you know, they just had a big investment, but so there are projects, and you know, um, turn again with Giga, they just got Mitsubishi, and so there is some movement. But what's interesting about this is Turnigan's investor was Mitsubishi which is Japanese, not Canadian, not American, right? So where, where are we? Mark Selby's investor, I believe, is British, right? It's a British company. So, so even inside of these projects, the, the investment dollars aren't coming out of the US. They're not coming out of Canada. They're coming out of, you know, if I'm friendly in the, in the geopolitical world, you know, the UK and Japan, but I just still find it ironic that, you know, where's, you know where, where are the Canadian and American investors here? Well, it's the entire thing. Exactly. I mean, where is the Ontario Pension Fund? Where is BlackRock? I, I don't know. Like, I'm not an expert in these things. Well, but... well, Black, I think what BlackRock would say is, well, we can go invest and make a better return somewhere else. That has to be what they would say, right? And so that, Probably that's, right. yeah. that's the genius of China, which is China saying we're not taking a mark to market two and 20, 12 month cycle. You know, you know, what do people say? Like, no one really owns mining stocks anymore. They just rent them. You know, it's short term hedge mm. fund money, even the long-term guys are short-term now. So uh, what China did is brilliant. They said, we're going to use the taxpayer dollars to fund our future. And, you know, maybe that's really the way forward in, in the U.S. and Canada is for the governments to actually build some of these. Ones. I, I don't have the answer, right? But but it's right, clear sure. that, that the private markets aren't funding it because they can seek a better return elsewhere, which is like, you know, the efficient market theory. But if as a country or countries we're saying we need this for the future of the country, then at some moment you have to wonder if you know if they're going to make rules that, that prohibit people from accessing tax breaks because they're buying critical minerals from you know countries that aren't on the list, then it also seems to me that they're going to have to kind of step in and help fund these in a meaningful way. And pronto, I mean, because you just think about how do they compete? Uh, how does a car company in North America compete with, say, a Chinese our company, or if they're getting their nickel at a fraction of the price, if let's say you have buyers in, you know, let's say the African continent that want to buy cars, there's a developing area that may you may want to sell a lot of cars to. Where are they going to buy them from? Are they going to pay 50% more uh, from North America? Well, I'll give you an example. I'm really so I recently just bought some stock, like a small amount of stock in this company called US Copper. And it's interesting because they have a copper deposit, which is a historically operating mine in California. In somewhere in northeastern California, and um, you know they operated for ten or twenty years, and they have a huge deposit there. It's kind of low grade, and you say, well, you know, and the reason I bought this and I bought a few other of these names is because you know what's the market cap of this thing? I don't know, five or ten. It's nothing, right? You could easily see that that these and a handful of these names should have a multi hundred million dollar market cap if all of a sudden these people are going to turn on a dime and start allowing permitting and pushing forward these projects. So, as an investor, as a speculator. I think it's time to go back through these microcap companies, which have just kind of dwindled in disbelief now for, for decades and come back through and say, maybe, maybe you own them as an option 
on the U.S. government deciding they really truly are dedicated to rebuilding, you know, copper mines in America, refining capacity, cobalt in Idaho. And so, I mean, it's kind of also an interesting moment for investors to take a, a risky view, but a view on where this might be going. So that's kind of an interesting moment. It is. I mean, basically, it's, it sounds to me like you're saying that, you know, there's going to be support in theory, you know, at least in legislation, uh, there should be support of some kind, a, a friendlier environment towards the mining industry than maybe we've seen in the last well, look, you know, look at decade or so in, in the GM's U.S. GM's announcement of Thacker Pass, wasn't it? It was contingent, I think, on a ruling by a court and you get these big announcements by GM and three days later, the court kind of rules in the favor and the investment goes forward. This is like within the last couple of weeks, right? So, and that's in the US, that's a certain type of, of critical material that's needed. So, you know, maybe we will see a, a little bit of a, a different attitude towards permitting in the US. You know, we can kind of mock what they're doing by creating a dual copper market, a US copper market and a and not you an ex ally copper market. We can mock that and there'll be all sorts of weird outcomes, people sneaking copper in, like all that will happen. But the other side of this is for speculators, is it's kind of an interesting moment to go buy, buy up the US coppers of the world because you know these things are trading at five and ten million dollar market caps and you can wake up and they could have 100, 200 million dollar market caps. So there's also an opportunity there to speculate on what's going to happen with uh, companies that have deposits inside of, of the US for the first time in a really long time, actually. And, and uranium, by the way, not to digress, but uranium is kind of the same way. Look at Amir Adani and his uranium play. I mean, he's done a really great job of, of pulling together all these assets in the US and you know he's had a great performance. And, and there's some other companies that are doing the same thing. So maybe Maybe it's it's a renaissance for U.S. mining. One would basically hope, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, and it's almost like they don't even have a choice, yeah. you know. And and you know, to your point about GM, I mean, I, I don't know if this is what you were talking about, but I was reading last week. I was shocked to see that GM is buying stakes in mining companies. Is that what you were? Referring yeah, yeah, to? yeah, that's what I was referring to. Hundred percent. I mean, that is headline news in in my mind. I mean, this is a new paradigm. And Tesla, there was a Bloomberg story about Tesla buying into lithium. I mean, I didn't. I, right. Know, right. Right. Like, so, yeah. So, um, look, and those are private actors. And so I think the, the read through is they're getting serious about this, too. So that that's a different step. That's also another leg of this. It's kind of we're talking sort of about a few things here. One is the U.S. government. But then now we're talking about the private markets kind of entering with GM and Tesla and and, and whoever else. We talked about Mitsubishi at Turnigan and. And so you actually see the people who need to consume the material entering the market. And that's an interesting tell, I would say. I, I totally agree. I mean, to me, it represents a new kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, thoughtfulness on behalf of the car companies saying, uh, we need to think about this, where we're going to get our metal from. There's no longer this assumption that we're just going to have unlimited metal. Ford did that, right? In the early days of Ford, they owned the rubber. They went down and developed like rubber plantations. Oh, really? I, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, and I'll tell you another one that people don't realize. In the United States, when the uranium boom was happening and pre-17 uh, Mile Island, Westinghouse and a lot of these places actually started to buy uranium deposits. And then what happened was there was kind of a couple of a series of disasters. And so that they uninvested from, from the uranium space. But there are some kind of other moments where people started down these paths. And if history is a guide, probably what happened is you do see a huge amount of investment from these companies, the Teslas, the, you know, the GMs, the Fords, wh whoever it is. And you probably see a decade or two of, of that. And then you probably see them separate again at some point, right? They probably come together. And then as the markets commoditize and standardize, you know, in the early days of oil, for instance, there were a lot of different types of oil. Like, you know, there wasn't a standard. And so as lithium standardizes, as everything kind of standardizes over the next decade or two, maybe you'll see it separate back out again. But, you know, I think, an important point is China doesn't want to sell you a battery. They want to sell you a car, right? Like, like Detroit is going to move from Detroit to somewhere, somewhere in mainland China. And I actually think, you know, depending on how this goes, there's every possibility that some of the brands of cars that you know will be owned by Chinese conglomerates and sold to you. You won't know the difference and, and they'll be manufactured in China. So this is a real reworking of kind of the industrial complex and 
it's genius and they're doing it in a fair way. They're just investing their money. And I think if in fact the US wants to retain some of that manufacturing, then they're gonna to have to act immediately in a more meaningful way. And you can see the pressure being put on GM and Tesla by the fact that they're actually making some of those investments on their own. Yeah, the stakes are high, aren't they? Now, as far as the LME, do you have any insight on say like the, we hear about, you've probably seen the same stories I have on Bloomberg about the inventories being at record lows. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what's going on with the LME? I mean, we had that big disaster about a year ago with nickel and the big short squeeze. What's your take on the, the LME these days? In your mind, I mean, you're chairman at Nickel 28, like does it have credibility in your eyes? Uh, what, what is going on? That moment really damaged the trust of the market. You know, they, they bailed out an investor speculator, like how many times have you bought a stock and it went down and then someone came and saved you? Like that never happens. They, they bailed out an investor. And I think as a consequence of how they handled it, the shutting the market, reversing trades, I can tell you from some of the contracts that we look at, physical contracts, people are trying to move away from that contract. And the fact that that LME uh, inventories are low doesn't mean anything to me because there's a lot of off LME contracts now. That, you know, So I think that it's highly likely that at the minimum, a secondary pricing mechanism that's widely used will emerge. And I think it's probably just as likely that the LME nickel contract in the near future, even in the midterm, it's never going to carry that weight that it did in terms of pricing. Everyone wants to move away from it because of how that was handled. Like, like that's just not the intention of the contract. It's still relevant in contracts, you know, payabilities, but you're seeing you're seeing people try to move away from it. I mean, they just uh, didn't handle that situation in a way that the market felt was appropriate. And just in terms of the practicalities, I mean, how do you move away from that? Do you simply just source your nickel and sell your nickel in other venues or how does that work? There are other markets. I mean, there are other, there are other contracts, uh, other, there are other journalistic pricing, the Shanghai price. I mean, there's, there's a, sure. other, okay. mechanisms. but also kind of comes back to this point, like metal is one price. And if you have an MHP, you, you sell that MHP at something called a payability. So uh, if I say, my, just to pick a number, if I say my payability is 85% and nickel selling for a dollar, that means I'm selling my nickel for 85 cents in this example, right? And the reason is because on the one hand, you would have pure like metal. And then on the other hand, you might have like a, a, a slurry, a green slurry or something, right? So it does make sense that other mechanisms are going to emerge. And this has just been a catalyst for it. I think there was before that kind of debacle, there were conversations around how should these different types of nickel be priced. I mean, there were a lot of conversations. And what I think is that that situation acted as a catalyst to accelerate that conversation now. And so, you know, maybe an outcome is that a certain type of nickel is priced there and then the other types of nickel are priced differently. But I think time will tell, but there's no question in the market. There are a lot of different actors trying to figure out the proper way to price it. Okay, fascinating. And just to wrap up here, I was wondering if you could talk about ESG. I mean, we hear a lot about this, and you kind of uh, hinted at that earlier. I mean, the whole Inflation Reduction Act, when they want to source metals locally, one of the you know undercurrents oh, that I read. Inflation Enhancement Act. Well, the wildly it's, it's inflationary it's act. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> sourcing locally is not going to help inflation. Yeah, I mean, like, and so part of the undercurrent that I take from that is this idea that if we create this locally, it's going to be done in a greener way. To me, that's also part of it. So what is your take just basically on this idea that, you know, we're talking about all these different kinds of nickels. Well, what about ESG nickel versus non-ESG nickel? Do you have anything to say about that topic? Yeah, first of all, I think it's a misnomer that, that um, Chinese companies don't produce in a green way. I mean, I can tell you right now that MCC does a fantastic job with their production. So I think that's a selling point for somebody somewhere. But I think that ultimately you had all this big ESG momentum a year or two ago and a lot of fluff got put in. And now a bunch is getting cut out, as we can see from, from a lot of the press around uh, ESG funds and so on. But as it actually pertains to companies... I think ESG is really going to be about environmental best practices, working with local communities, being clear and transparent in your communications. And so there's definitely a place for it. I think it just kind of got a little bit overheated and there was a lot, lot said about it in the media, but 
I don't know that a U.S. copper project is going to have a better ESG record than a Canadian project versus Freeport's P&G. Because, you know, these countries have laws and are very strict. You know, P&G has great, great laws, for instance, around production, right? So that's a fantastic place. So I, I don't think it's as binary as that. I mean, somebody's going to sell it that way, but I think that would be a little bit overreaching. It is almost kind of like a classic Western assumption that, oh, yeah. we're going to make it all great and then everybody else is going to, you know. PNG is an example. They have fantastic rules. Like, they, like no, no place is perfect, but um, there's lots of places in Africa with great mining laws, great rules. So I, I think it's a little bit like you can't just like say everywhere is like this based on this because even within a jurisdiction, you're going to have good actors and bad actors. You know, we can look to the tailings tragedies in Canada. That doesn't mean everyone in Canada is bad. It means that someone didn't do their job. So I think it's much more nuanced than that. Well, do you have any closing thoughts here for us, Anthony, just on the metals markets, nickel, anything that's kind of, you know, at the top of mind for you these days? You know, I, I think we, we covered it pretty well. I mean, look, the, these markets are all interesting. If you have a little bit of longer view, obviously in the short term, if there's a big recession, change the dynamic, but this, you know, electrification and transition is real and, and we're seeing its impact on the markets. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us once again, Anthony Malowski, chairman of Nickel 28 and founder of the Organ Group. It's great to see you again. Let's do this again sometime soon. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me as always. Hope you enjoyed that. And thanks again to Anthony Malowski for joining us on the podcast from the BMO Mining Conference in Miami. Sounds like a pretty interesting conversation is being had over there. But our attention now is focused on PDAC coming up next week in Toronto. So do stop by the Northern Miner booth. We'd be happy to talk to you. And usually we have a free paper that we give out. Let's see if we do it again this year. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, where we might see you, take care.